You're listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is season 13, episode 4. Art, ritual, communal ceremony, they are rites of passage into a new life, the life after the person you loved, or the life after the dream that died, uh, the life after whatever you lost. It initiates you into this new way of being. Amanda Held Opeld is an author, speaker, and songwriter. She writes about faith, grief, and creativity, and believes in the power of community, ritual, shared worship, and storytelling to heal even our deepest wounds. In today's episode, Amanda shares with me about the art of lament and how deep-rooted communal practices can help us heal and grow through the difficult experiences of our lives. Drawing from her book, Holy Unhappiness, Amanda shares her journey of grappling with experiences of disillusionment when life with God didn't feel the way she expected it to feel. In just a few weeks, you can join Amanda live at the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts Gathering where she'll be conducting a workshop called Let There Be Grief, Rituals and Remembrances as a Path to Healing. See the show notes of this episode to learn more. I'm your host, Stephen Roach, and this is The Art of Lament with Amanda Held Opelt. Amanda, thank you for joining me today on the Makers and Mystics podcast. This is awesome. I have so looked forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me on, Stephen. Absolutely. You know, the more that I have gotten to know your work, your writing, and all the things that you're doing, I've just been so excited about this as well, and also excited to have you joining us in, gosh, I don't even want to say how close it's getting now, <laughs> at the breath and the clay. It's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'm so excited. It's such a, a, a cool thing you have there. And, and so many of my friends, some of our mutual friends have, have been part of that over the years. So uh, I'm honored and thrilled uh, to be part of it. Well, we'll get into some of what you're going to do with us at the breath and the clay in a little bit. But I'd love to start by just talking about this beautiful new book that I have in my hand here. You know, our listeners can't see it, but I'm holding Holy Unhappiness, God, Goodness, and the Myth of the Blessed Life in my hand. And I've been spending some time with this book this week, and it's Mm -hmm. really amazing. It's really amazing. I'd love to dive into this with you a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So... Talk to me about this book. What what prompted this book for you to write now? You know, the embarrassing thing that I have to admit is that this is a book that I have been uh, working on for probably five or six years, like too long. I've been working on it way too long. And in fact, I was reminded of this because I got one of those pop-up memories on on Facebook, yeah, and it was a picture of my my daughter who was a baby at the time, and it was it's a precious picture to me because my my sister uh, took it, and she took that that picture just before she passed away, and I remember when she took the photo, we were standing at the swing set, she was pushing her son in the swing, I was holding my newborn baby, and we were talking wow. about this book, 
And I was telling her some of these ideas that I had and some things I was struggling with in my life. And she said to me, you need to write a book about this. This is a book. This is something that people need. And I was like, oh, I'm, I don't know if I, I'm, I'm a songwriter. I'm not a writer. I don't know if I can do this. And she said, you got to do it. And we talked about the outline a little bit. And that was kind of the day that that book was born. So it's yeah. five years ago. Um, and Facebook was good to remind me. And that that's a precious memory. But but essentially what it, it was was birthed from was these struggles that I had uh, throughout my life that I felt like my, my whole life, even though my life was really, really good on paper in the sense that like I, I, I had what anybody would call a very hashtag blessed life. I, I had all my needs provided for. I was never wealthy, but I was also never hungry. I always had shelter and, and clothes. Uh, and, and more than that, I felt like I, I, I'm a pretty good person. Like I've made good decisions throughout my life. I've believed believed all the right things. I've, I have quote unquote found my calling. I married a good godly Christian man. And so these are all these, these choices that I'd made. I'd followed kind of the script, right? That's supposed to lead you to a happy life. And despite all that, I, I still struggled from time to, not even from time to time, fairly regularly struggled with anxiety, struggled with um, frustration, restlessness, uh, boredom, maybe most profoundly boredom. And I just kind of started asking these questions. I thought if I, you know, I thought if I believed the right things, I would feel the right way. I thought that a holy life would lead to an emotionally happy life. And so why hasn't it? Why doesn't my very blessed life always feel like a blessing? And those were just some of the questions that I wrestled with in this book holy unhappiness. Yeah. Well, I have to say first that you have completely validated my process because I've been writing a memoir for at least six or seven years at this point. Yes. <laughs> so for anybody else out there listening that you've been carrying a project around for a decade or whatever, you have just been validated, right? <laughs> yes. It, it is modernity that tells us we need to crank out a new work every single year and then we have to rush the process like there, oh, yeah. there's something i think really beautiful about a work that is formed slowly over time you yes. know that my my thesis when i started this book changed because i don't i it my destination changed if that yeah. makes sense because i yes. found a new path as i was working as i was writing yes. but but on the other hand Stephen, we'd really love to have that memoir so if you could kind of get on it a little <laughs> bit that'd be great Hey, you know, maybe that's a podcast for another day, but I am excited about that one. And interesting enough, it does deal with a lot of grief, which I know mm. that your work and, and a lot of this book, it does tackle some of those darker, harder to swallow subjects like grief, you know, and, and like you said, these disappointments. And mm -hmm. I'd love to know more like this process of reconciling mm -hmm. disappointment with what's supposed to be the blessed life. And, I, and I, I find that interesting that, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost seems like you had to come to a point where you had to wrestle through validating that feeling of disappointment. Mm -hmm. why, why do I feel this? I've done all the right things. I have such a beautiful life. I've made so many good decisions and, and have so many things to be thankful for, but yet there's this gnawing anxiety. There are these disappointments and things that maybe didn't turn out the way you thought they would. What was that like for you? And how did you yeah. even come to the point that you allowed yourself to say, hey, it's okay that I feel this? 
Yeah. I think grief actually ended up being the true catalyst for what what the book ended up being in the end. Um, Because like I said, I had led a a fairly um, easy, trauma-free kind of life up until my mid-30s. This is, you know, but, you know, I kind of started thinking about this book. What what am I, how am I going to, you know, is this, is this something I want to write about? And then I had a profound encounter with grief that totally flipped, like I said, flipped the thesis on its head. It was just over a period of, of, of a couple of years that I lost my, my grandmother, who I was very close to, had uh, three miscarriages, and then most profoundly lost my, my, my sister, who was my only sibling, uh, very suddenly. Uh, and that was when I, I felt like, okay, I had all these ideas about what the experience of grief was going to be like. You know, I thought, I have a sound theology of of suffering. So I believe the right things. And so I'm going to feel the right way. I'm going to pray. And the peace that passes understanding is going to fill my heart and my mind. I am going to be able to see a redemptive story arc in what has occurred. God is going to feel present with me. And and unfortunately, none of that happened for me in my grief. Grief was awful. It was like being tortured. It was like, I, I cannot exist inside this ache. It I, I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to proceed in the world without her carrying this, this pain, this pain of infertility and miscarriage that's, that's kind of attached itself almost to my body. I don't know how to do this, and I'm praying for peace, and there is no peace. I'm searching for God and he feels absent. And so that was when I was like, well, okay, something's gone awry. (laughs) Either I've done something wrong or God's done something wrong or there is no God. Uh, And that these are hard questions. These are, these, this is like the dark night of the soul. right? Right. But that's when I, when I realized this, term came to mind where I thought, you know, I don't think I've believed a traditional prosperity gospel, this idea that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy. I knew that that sickness and poverty and, and death even was part of the Christian life, as part of being human. But I did subscribe to the subtle spinoff of the prosperity gospel, which I like to call the emotional prosperity gospel. Again, it's this belief that if we if we're just faithful to our quiet time, if we believe the right thing and we make good decisions, we might not be healthy and wealthy, but we're going to be happy. We're going to you know experience um, meaning and excitement in our work. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, you know happy relationships with people. We're going to always get along with people. In our grief, we're going to feel immediate comfort. We're going to see meaning uh, in, in our sorrow. And I don't think that's promised anywhere in Scripture. Um, you know, as I went through back through the Bible and read it with the eyes of a griever, I see pain and sorrow woven throughout and people wrestling with this question of meritocracy, right? Like I've done all the right things. I mean, the whole book of Job is here's a righteous man. And not only does he lose everything, he feels awful about it. Yeah. You know, he there is no, I mean, Job is not telling us a redemptive storyline in yeah. in his, uh, you know, in, in scripture. He's, he's crying out in anguish about how awful it is. And so then that's when I really began to kind of deconstruct, I guess you might, that's a loaded word, I apologize, <laughs> but I, I began to kind of untangle this idea <laughs> of the emotional prosperity gospel, how it had in how it had just gotten in the bloodstream, right? Mm-hmm. And and why I believed some of these empty promises. And then probably the biggest question is, 
why do I follow Jesus? Why, yeah. why have I said yes to God, yes to the life of faith, if it doesn't always make me feel better? Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, we were talking about this on our Instagram lately, just about the role of the artist or the permission in which the artist needs, especially for those that would identify as an artist of faith, somebody who's motivated, whose creative work is motivated by a sense of faith. And like you were just talking about, motivated by the gospel, by this hope, you know, that that is at the core of the gospel. And yet we as artists need to feel the permission to engage these darker emotions of our human experience. And I think that for some people, reconciling hope and grief is a very tedious process that mm-hmm. doesn't always happen quickly or easily. In fact, it can cause people to shipwreck in their faith if they cannot come to terms with some of the emotions that you've talked about I'd love to know for you, as someone who is an artist, a writer, a songwriter, and a person of faith, what was this process like for you? And, you know, I don't want to make assumptions about where you are now, but how did you get to where you are now? And how Mm -hmm. have you wrestled through that and maintained a sense of faith while at the same time leaving room for these dark emotions you've had to face? Yeah. I think for me, one of the the aha moments was kind of recognizing that, that lament is in many ways an art form, and it is a it is a very holy art form. You might you know even say that's where I got the title of my book, Holy Unhappiness. There's something very holy and dignified and beautiful and necessary about our tears, about our lament. Jeremiah. Oh, that book, that'll wreck you. But one of my, yes. one of my favorite sections is in, you know, chapters eight, nine, 10, 11. Um, and there's this, this portion where God is talking about, you know, the injustice that he's seen, um, in, in the community of his people and the death and the destruction and their lack of flourishing, their lack of wholeness. And he says, you need to call the wailing women. Um, and the wailing women need to come. And he says, women, um, you need to teach your daughters how to lament, teach your daughters how to wail. And there's this sense in which like this, this is a skill set to be able to cry out articulately, to be able to cry out truthfully and boldly is an art form, is a skill set. So much so that, that whalers were paid back yeah. in the, the, the ancient um, uh, cultures. They, they, were, uh, they were compensated <laughs> for their labor. And there are even sections in that, that portion of Jeremiah. Um, and, and scholars differ as to, you know, is it Jeremiah speaking here? Is it God speaking here? But, but regardless, there are portions where Jeremiah is crying out like a wailing woman, and even God is crying out like a wailing woman. The sense that God is not ashamed to be associated with the perceived, you know, emotions of a, you know, an upset woman. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's really, really beautiful. And then you see just grief composed all over scripture, one third of the Psalms. I'm sure someone on your podcast has noted this before. One third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Jesus composes a beautiful lament as he as he wails over Jerusalem. And and just the, the dignity of God himself crying. Um, I think the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most fascinating 
passages of scripture I've ever seen is it God arguing with God about the fate of the world, uh, Jesus um, who who is just overcome, so overcome with the prospect of uh, the cross and the grief that he knows will follow that he that he has what some people call a panic attack like if if Jesus can wail and lament that viscerally that bodily then then I can as well there's yeah. dignity within that god's an emotive god but but i think it's important to say too because it's it's not that i don't think what we believe shapes and forms our emotions at all and i don't like to make a disconnect necessarily between our thoughts and our knowledge and our hearts and our emotion i think it's all it's all one right um but i think it's important to remember that we i think as people of faith are called to be people of hope not necessarily people of happiness um and and hope to me is so much sturdier than optimism it's it's sturdier than um you know kind of well people call it toxic positivity now but this this <laughs> yeah. idea that that hope hope tells the whole story hope doesn't just point out the good things and look on the bright side and and kind of deny the struggle hope looks both square in the face and says yes this is painful yes this is hard no this is not how it should be and there is hope and there's a new day coming and there is new creation yeah. and so that's the tension that we hold when we hold hope and and in every lament in scripture we see that tension there is there is struggle and there is hope there is mm. sorrow and there is joy um and that that's the hard artistic path i think yes. for artists of faith yes i love that hope is sturdier than optimism that's a beautiful statement you know and we were talking about recently how hope is the framework you know if as for people of faith hope can be our framework but inside mm -hmm. of that framework there is room to grieve, to lament, to explore pain, disappointment, betrayal, whatever it may be that that we're going through, you know, and it doesn't mean that we always have to wrap up our art with a nice little bow at the end. It doesn't mm -hmm. mean that we have to give the audience a happily ever after. I always cite Psalm 88 that just kind of ends with this thud of like, yeah. you know, darkness is my only friend. <laughs> end of <Yeah>. Psalm, <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, yeah. Close curtain. Yes. But I love you pointing out that so much of the scripture it gives composition to grief. It gives artistic form. It gives poetry to form. And just, you know, talking about conversations you and I have had about even the workshop you're doing at the Breath and the Clay, mm -hmm. you wrote to me that grief needs an artist mm -hmm. and that processing our grief requires creative engagement and inquisitiveness. I'd love to hear you unpack that a little more here for our listeners. Why mm -hmm. do you feel that grief needs an artist and why does processing our grief require creative engagement? Yeah. You know, grief is one of those experiences that it, it's it's so ubiquitous, it's so universal and yet it is so specific. I think it's Jan Richardson who says it is it grief is piercingly particular. Even when you lose the same person, like in my family, we all lost my sister, but we all lost a different relationship. The grief affected all of us in yeah. different ways. And so, uh, gosh, how, how, and just the profundity of death, even how can mm -hmm. someone be there, body and soul, spirit, animated flesh, how can they be there and then suddenly be gone? 
that's a mystery. The scripture talks about it as if it's a mystery. And that that's what art is for, right? It's for articulating the mysterious. It's for giving voice to the things that we have no language for, the things that for which words are inadequate. And so I, that's why I think art is so necessary when we're grieving. I, I My first book, A Hole in the World, I wrote about grief rituals yeah. um, from throughout history and from ac- across cultures. I focused on Western culture, actually, because so many non-Western cultures still have their grief rituals very much intact. Yeah. I wanted to know about the rituals from my my bloodline from my ancestors and why had they disappeared because oh, we so have good. so few uh, w- grief rituals less left in modern day american society and rituals are an art form they are they yes. are bodily engagement even even I, I like to think of superstitions in some ways as an art form and i know christians don't talk about superstitions that much for lots of reasons that you and i could talk <laughs> about but but to me a lot of times superstitions are just us kind of trying to take some agency over something that feels out of our control, fear, fear of illness, fear of death, fear of a bad harvest. And so, so many grief rituals are rooted in superstitions, like telling the bees. There's this belief that when someone um, dies, you have to go and tell the family beehive uh, that the person has died and put the bees in mourning, you know, put a black cloth over the hive. So, the superstition is if you don't, the bees will fly away. I just think, I love that act because we're beekeeper, well, I shouldn't say we're beekeepers. My husband is a beekeeper. So I'm very interested in the culture and folklore around bees. But I just think like the bodily act of engaging with nature, mm-hmm. um, that there, there's an art form to that as well. And and part of that, I think, is just this is how our bodies absorb what has happened. Art, ritual, communal ceremony, they are rites of passage into a new life, the life after the person you loved, or the life after the dream that died, yeah. uh, the life after whatever you lost. It initiates you into this new way of being. And that's why that's why art and, and ritual and, and ceremony and superstition are so important to me. Wow, I love that. I, I love that. I've never heard anyone talk about superstition in that way, and I love it. That gives me a lot to think about, you know? and. I love that you also brought up a dream dying because often when we talk about grief, we immediately go to our loved ones that have passed on. But I think so often for many of us who go through different stages of life, whether it's becoming a parent, whether it's getting married, whether it's a divorce, whether it's a job that ended and a new one that started, whatever it is, these markers of change in our life, Mm. we don't often deal with those things or even know that we need to deal with those things. You know, I know in my life, I'll just be vulnerable with you, you know, for so long, music and being a professional touring musician was my identity. It was the way that I showed up in the world. It was the way that I dreamed about life as a kid, Mm. you know, but there came a place in my life where I knew that my relationship to music was changing. Mm -hmm. And it took several years of grief and a lot of mistakes and things that, that took place in my life that enabled me to make peace with mm. this transition, you know? And mm. there there yeah. were, you know, songs that I had to write to music. I had to write a yeah. song to music to walk through my own grief of, of things changing and also to find hope in the middle mm. of that, you know? Yeah. And 
anyway, I don't want to take up too much of our time talking about my story, but but it is an instance of where grief had to be expressed through artistry. And I think a lot of people even listening can relate to that, that when we yeah. go through transitions in life, uh, where do we look for rituals to lead us through those moments? Where where are the rites of passage? And perhaps maybe that's a part of your work as an artist who's also working with uh, establishing rituals and, and bringing mm-hmm. some light onto these subjects. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the, and the church has, I think, a real opportunity here because we're losing so many of our communal institutions, our communal connection points now. You know, we're losing bowl, everything from bowling clubs to Boy Scouts <laughs> to, um, you know, people don't even go to the office anymore. Uh, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say they don't, but it, less and less, right? Right, right. That we, we, we are continually moving towards this insular, isolated, individualistic way of being. And the church is one of these few remaining institutions that kind of demands that people commune and gather bodily together as a habit every week. You know, it's the the, the habit really matters. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, as, as our church, um, we try to regularly work in, um, you know, s- services of lament, um, prayer and reflection times. You know, we structure our worship around ideas of, of lament, cries for justice. Gosh, we even, even had conversations about how to work the imprecatory psalms <laughs> into, into our worship time because we just think it's important to, to mark that communally and that the church it's it's such an opportunity i think um for for the body of christ wow i'm so glad you brought this up because two things one this season on the podcast we are exploring this very question of community Mm. and culture and so talking about grief rituals and how many of us in the West don't have strong grief rituals, that lends itself mm-hmm. to the cultural part of our conversation. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. in your book, Holy Unhappiness, you have a whole chapter devoted to community. And I'd love to talk through that with you a bit, if you would. Yeah. In this chapter, I love it. You talk about your own experience kind of growing up in 80s and mm-hmm. 90s evangelical white Christian uh, yeah. community and how yeah. you went through some experiences of of what happened when you were no longer there and it, it, yeah. you felt adrift and unsure about your relational anchors. but. Mm-hmm. Deeper in the chapter, you go back to the etymology and the history of the word community and how it means with or next to, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. how in our modern day, we can choose who our community is more than ever before. And -hmm. yet there's this weird tension where we're all more isolated than ever before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk to me about that. <laughs> yeah, boy. I got to say, this this is a chapter I rewrote about six times. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a really hard one for me. And maybe it's because they say you write best from a place of pain. And to be honest with you, I feel like I've had a lot of joy when it comes to community. Yeah. And I've had a lot of um, richness. And so um, 
I'm so grateful for this community of people that we've found in Boone. I'm going to talk about Boone for a second because I think it kind of illustrates it. Boone's one of those weird places. If you're if your listeners aren't familiar, you know, Western North Carolina in southern region of Appalachia, and it's kind of this strange crossroads of people because in this town you have you know what some people would refer to as hillbillies, which is a pejorative that I like to kind of um, own as a positive thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you've got you've got mountain people that have lived here since the 1700s. You have new people moving in because we have a very large university here in Appalachian State. You have retirees that come up from Florida in the summer to get into the cool mountain air. You we have an aid organization that's based here, so you have aid workers from literally all over the world. So you've got Africans, you know, you've got Kenyans and Cambodians and Iraqi people living here, and it's this weird convergence of people all living isolated in this mountain town that's a little hard to get out of, to be honest with you. It's two hours from from the nearest airport. And the reason I think my communal life has been so rich here is because Boone geographically (laughs) forces you to live in close proximity to people who are really, really different from you Mm -hmm. and have different persuasions. We, we vote, we go red or blue at any, you know, different, every election it's different. We'll sometimes vote red, sometimes vote blue. And we've just kind of been forced to live together in a way that's really, really, I think, healthy and whole. I think that proximity to people who are different than you can can expand your horizons and expand your ideas about the world in ways that are really, really healthy. But like you said, what I write about in the book is more and more we're kind of um, handpicking our communities. Yeah. And this is why I have such, t- I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Actually, I have a lot of tension around this idea of online communities uh, around, um, you know, kind of building communal spaces uh, on on the internet, I guess, and around social media um, profiles and things like that, because in some ways it's such an it's such an asset to be able to connect with people who are like you, but you haven't found anywhere around you, and it's just you're able to be encouraged by them and you're able to be sharpened by them. But on the other hand, we can we can end up forming these little echo chambers and online bubbles. I don't know. Help me with this because I'm kind of struggling with how to utilize the internet as a way of building deep community versus kind of how it. In some ways facilitates this kind of way that we're inclined to customize and curate <laughs> our social lives to fit our personal desires and our personal needs. Help, yes. help me, Stephen. I don't know how to do this well. Yeah. Well, to be honest, I'm not so sure that we can. And, you <laughs> yeah. know, I, I think, you know, even my presence on social media is very limited to art and faith discussions. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot about my family or my personal life. Of course, I'm a very private Enneagram for person anyway, you know, but I find myself having discussions around a very marked topic. Whereas mm. in person, like you're saying, there's such a, a wider, richer experience to be had. I think there's something beautiful about looking a person in the eye. And, you know, I tell people, you know, my background, I spent a number of years playing Turkish, Bulgarian, Greek, Egyptian, Arabic, West African music. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up touring in a lot of different communities and 
having dinner with Muslim families that, you know, they were asking me, how can you follow this Jesus figure, you know, and all this stuff. And and then I would go to a Sufi tea house and and I would sit there and have conversations with them. And then on Sunday morning, I'm with a crew of Baptist folks just going after, you know what I mean? So diversity of experience and learning from one another and cultivating humility in the art of listening Mm-hmm. is a value for me. And in specific social media context, that's very hard to do because we mm-hmm. have created an online culture that has said, oh, this is where I'm safe to just be a complete jerk and get away with it. But yeah. we're even tr- you know, trying to be a bit countercultural in that. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. it's funny because when you take a word like mystics, I forgot how polarizing the word mystic is, <laughs> which I kind of love it because yeah. of that. But yeah. I, didn't, I didn't intend to be so polarizing. Some people understand mystic in terms of St. John of the Cross, mm-hmm. they, Teresa of Avila, all these folks that the desert fathers that I resonate with. Yeah. Other folks think I'm a psychic or something. And so, right, right. <laughs> you know, anyways, yeah. I don't know if that yeah. answered your question, but, it, no, but it's, it, a, it's it, a very it interesting does, time, right? you know? And, and, and we like, just like you said, people love to read a title of a podcast or, you know, they like to see, well, who, who's following this person and who's yes. friends with this person? And they make judgment calls about who they exactly. are. And, and just, just like everything, gosh, social media, the internet, it can be such a tool for good because it's, yeah. it is through the internet that I was exposed to so many you know, black writers who helped yes, me understand some of exactly. my privileges, and and uh, it's it's through the inter- internet that I've, I've I've heard different perspectives, different denominations, things like that. Yeah. But but anything that kind of forms us to believe that when it comes to community mm-hmm. and when it comes to the voices in our heads and the voices that are shaping and discipling us, that we can have it our way, that we are the consumer, that we can shape and craft it to be what we want it to be. We just, I think we just need to have a lot of checks and balances around that. I think you're so right. And I think that that echo chamber is really a dangerous thing. You know, and this yeah. might be above my pay grade to bring into the conversation, but even the way that algorithms are curated to mm-hmm. to create that insular environment, I think it's a very dangerous thing. And speaking yeah. just specifically to even the world of faith, you yeah. know, that's something that I push back against very intentionally. Are you a progressive yeah. Christian? Are you a fundamentalist Christian? Yeah. No, I'm beloved and I'm stumbling yeah. toward grace and anything right. beyond that is suspect for me. Right. You know, I want to have conversations with people that I know disagree with me because yeah. it's going to make my faith richer. Yes. I think it's a sign of weakness if we can only communicate with those that believe the same things that we do. Mm-hmm. I yeah. know that some of my atheist friends have sharpened my faith more than yeah. many sermons that I've heard, yeah. you know. That's right. Yeah. Right. And it's, I think you, that's that's such a great way to put it because I think we need to just be very cautious that our lives don't become like the algorithm that everywhere we can we make space to rub shoulders in embodied present ways with people who are different than us. That that doesn't mean necessarily like, you know, angrily tweeting or what do we do now? Ex- post exit. I don't know what we're doing. Angrily <laughs> tweeting at somebody yeah. who you know voted differently than you or believes differently than you. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, are you carrying the load of life next to somebody who's different than you? You know, I, I, I love that our conversation is yes. kind of meandering here, and this will bring us back to the grief side of things is that, like, when it comes to 
grief. Grief is meant to be done communally alongside all sorts of people. And so I think that's what I think we just have to be careful about as we move more towards working from home and we're increasingly online and our algorithm is increasingly curating our social visibility. Are we saying, I'm going to put myself in spaces next to people who are different than me? That might mean that I go to a church with different kinds of people. That might mean that I choose to that I choose to keep going into an office. I actually think there's some merit to that. Or that I, I set up at a worker space and, and work remotely from there. Or I sit in coffee shops that have different kinds of people than, than, I, than I am. Because we have got to get shoulder to shoulder in, in the, the, the muck and the mire of life, I think, with people who are really, really different than us. Yes, I think that's beautiful. And, and you talk about that in your chapter on community, about how you realized how homogenous your experience had been. And then I love that you brought into this the story of the Samaritan. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about that, because that kind of connects grief and community in in a beautiful way. Talk to me about yeah. the inclusion of that story. Well, I just think we we always look at that story as Jesus telling us how how to serve people in need. Like here's um here's a story about how to help someone who's hurt on the side of the road. Um, you know, got to bandage their wounds. You got to, you know, I've even seen people um, talk about how this is an example about how micro loans are really the way of the future when it comes to aid work. You know what I mean? And I don't know, that might be true. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying you can't maybe draw that lesson <laughs> from the story. But it's my friend Dan Enerson who pointed out to me that, you know, that this is a story that begins with a question it's who is my neighbor? It's the self righteous, very ethnocentric religious elites of the day asking Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus points out that it's the Samaritan who is acting like the neighbor. It's the Samaritan, the person you see as unclean, the person who has different theological, like truly divergent theological inclinations yeah. in you that has shown compassion. And so the, the kind of bold assertion here is that you need to emulate the Samaritan. You know, it would have been so wildly <laughs> offensive um, for a for a religious person, a good religious Jew from Jesus' time, to hear a rabbi say, "Do as the Samaritan does." Yeah, you know, serve. So yes, it's certainly a parable that calls us to serve and to radically sacrifice for those who are in the ditches of life. But it's also a call to maybe see people who we think are outsiders or see people we think are just a little too different than us as somebody we could potentially learn from, somebody we could actually maybe draw lessons from. Yeah, you know, I say this often, but when I look at the creative process, I see differing things brought together in the same space mm -hmm. and seeing what happens when those things come together. Yeah. That's really what creativity is. That's yeah. how art is born, is yeah. bringing unlike things into a common mm -hmm. context yeah. and then seeing what comes out from those things. And I think that there's such a beautiful invitation we have, even as artists of faith in this modern culture, to be those architects of hope is what I like to call us, mm. you know, to be the architects of hope yeah. for our generation yeah. and to be the ones willing to build bridges and not burn bridges mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and to find new ways of marking time, find new ways of marking grief and find new ways of looking at who our neighbor is. Mm. And, and I love that your work kind of champions all of those things, you know? Thank you.
Well, let me ask you one last question as we close things up here. Talk to me a bit about, as we're leaning into grieving and we're also leaning into community, mm-hmm. how did community help you? It's a two-part question. How did community impact your process of grief? Mm-hmm. And then what do you think that we as a community, the larger community, what do we need to be grieving right now as a culture, as a nation, or even as the church? And then what's on the other side of that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, gosh. Just a small question <laughs> for you. <laughs> no, it's so good. It's so helpful. I, I think when I think about communal grieving, I think about the first ritual that I write about in my book, Irish Keening. I think when you interviewed, uh, who was it that wrote the book Body of Praise? Uh, is it David Taylor? David Taylor, yes. Yes, he talked to, he mentioned Irish Keening on your podcast. And I was like, oh, that's right. I, I, I want him to unpack that a little bit more. But for those who aren't familiar, it's this, it's this um, practice that, that was born in ancient Ireland and it, it died out by the 1950s, but it was this practice of, you know, gathering in the home of the person who had died and um, they would have the wake. Everyone's very familiar with the raucous, rowdy Irish wakes, you know, where this there's this kind of effervescent joy and laughter even in the midst of sorrow and sharing of funny stories and lots of drinking and lots of eating. But then the, the culmination of the wake came around midnight when these women from the community called uh, keeners or bonquintas is the, the name in the old Irish language. It means lead crier or lead keener. And they would come and they would gather and the room would get quiet. And suddenly these women would start moaning softly and weeping softly. And eventually that sound would, would grow and they would start singing or saying words in tribute to the person who had died. And these were improvised. These, are, these songs aren't recorded because they were customized, created in the moment for the, that was improv, for the, for the person who had died and tribute to them. And then the, the whimpering would eventually grow into this loud wailing and screaming and crying and everyone in the room would join in. And sometimes they would cry over the person who had just died, but they would also wail and weep over their loved ones who had died maybe two years ago, 10 years ago. And it was just this moment of unleash of unleashing your grief and your sorrow into the world. It was it was a, a complete meltdown. Like people today, modern people today would, would, if they were a fly on the wall, would say, this is unhinged. These people are not okay. Mm. <laughs> but but I think the, the Irish keener would attend the funeral of today and say, you're not okay. Don't you know what's happened? You've lost yeah. someone. You need to cry, you need to weep. And so it's only in seeing other people cry and wail in that vulnerability and seeing them lead out in that vulnerability that you find permission it was to, to cry yourself i think keening is is communal permission to fall apart and and i think that's why we need each other when we're when we grieve communally when we practice rituals of grief communally we see okay we're not alone we're not the only person that's been through this and and this awful chaotic feeling i feel inside is not abnormal i'm not sick there's nothing wrong with me i'm not this doesn't need to be pathologized this is humanity this is what it means to be human what it means to lose someone 
and you see other people lead you in grief. We don't have grief mentors anymore. And part of that is because, you know, we're so afraid of saying the wrong thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? That yeah. nobody wants to come alongside you and offer maybe wisdom and advice outside of those, you know, kind of pithy saccharine sentiments of like, well, the sun will come out tomorrow and everything happens for a reason. Right, right. Well, we need like grief mentors that are willing to tell us about this hard road of grief. That's good. Um, and when it comes to what we need to be grieving as a society, you know, I just think we are a, we're a culture that as we mechanize and globalize and digitize and become automated, we're losing our connection to our labor, we're losing our connection to our bodies, we're losing our connection to one another, we're losing our connection to the earth. In some ways, as we grieve climate change, and not to bring up a hot button topic, but as we maybe grieve the changing of the earth, I grieve our changing relationship to it. I, I grieve that we're becoming a society that feels like productivity is the highest end and the highest goal. And I, so I think what's on the other side of that is embodiment. I think what's on the other side of that is getting back into our bodies, honoring our bodies, our whole beings, being good to the land, being good to the earth, listening yes. in some ways to the earth. And again, talk about the mystic, there's a mystic in me coming out. It's like, Absolutely. what does the earth have to tell us about life and death and yes. sacrifice and service and community? You know, we are surrounded by this microbial world, even these tiny little fungus and viruses oh, and th that make up the created world that allow us to be. The earth allows us to breathe and to live and, and to be. And so I don't know if any of this is making sense, but I, to me, that's what we need to get on the other side of is like, remember yeah. that you're a creature. Remember that you're, you, you're part of a communal existence. Remember that you live in a body. And if there's a way that we can kind of come back to that a little bit. So good. I think the last thing I want to say is that there's there's this little bit uh, in Kurt Vonnegut's book, uh, Bluebeard. I don't know if you've ever read it, where there's an artist, the, the main character is an artist, and he talks, he's, he's an artist in the 40s in an increasingly like globalized art marketplace. And he laments that he's not become this world-renowned artist. Um, but he talks about how back in the the ancient times when people would stay in the hometowns they were born in, every community would have, they'd have a cobbler and they'd have a woodworker and every community would have a baker and a candlestick maker. <laughs> and every community would have a storyteller and they would have a songwriter and they'd have an artist. So maybe a community of 100, 500 people would have that one person creating art for that community and they were honored in that community. What if we started to kind of look at our artistic work in that type of communal setting to say, what can I create? Maybe not for the world, maybe not for the internet, <laughs> maybe not for the fame and the fortune. Maybe I should stop trying to compete at that global level. What if I created art to serve my embodied community? And that was enough. And that was, that was beautiful. What if I could bless my community of 100 people, of 500 people, and that would be enough to kind of fill my artist's heart? Uh, and reject this idea that we're always global citizens, reject this idea that we have to compete at this global level, that unless we have 100,000 followers, 200,000 followers, and it's not success, it's not enough. Some of, somehow all of that feels tied together to me, and I feel like I've, I've become a bit um, uh, uh, verbose here, but I hope that makes sense. It's so good. I think that's what's on the other side. 
smallness, embodiment, your community, your small community. I think there's a lot of healing in that. Yes, so good, Amanda. Amanda, thank you so much for taking this time to talk with me on Makers and Mystics today. This has been a truly rich conversation. Thank you, Stephen. I love your work. I love what you're doing. Keep at it. And give us that memoir. Yes, <laughs> you got it. Thank you for listening to the Makers and Mystics podcast. This episode was produced by me, Stephen Roach, with music provided by Somewhere at Sea. Be sure to see the show notes of this episode for links to Amanda's work, as well as links to join us at the Breath in the Clay Creative Arts event, taking place March 22nd through 24th in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. If you've been inspired by this podcast, please consider showing your support by heading over to patreon.com slash makersandmystics and joining our creative collective. Your generosity enables us to continue as a voice and an advocate for the arts. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep creating. The world needs your art. Thank you.